listeners, welcome back. It's once again time for Maya, my yoga audio, where it's a great time for your mind to be on the mat. And I'm so excited to be back for a part two. This is our first ever part two episode with guest Jasper James. In our last episode, we covered their near-death experience. We also looked at some activism work that got into and ran into some people making some not so good headlines in the world and where that moved them towards what they're doing in the world now. So Jasper, I want to thank you and welcome you back to part two of your episode with My Yoga Audio. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's good to be here. So we ended off last time. I just want to kind of dive right in because I feel like we left people on a little bit of a cliffhanger. <laughs> like we introduced this whole social justice as a spiritual practice and what's happening with religion. And it was like, wait, this is a whole new topic. So we decided there needed to be a, another episode to cover that. And there's a lot of conversations and material you and I have exchanged over the last few weeks and talking about it to help me understand, you know, your approach and you've done so much work. I wanted to talk to you about a diagram you sent me called Elemental Activism, which my understanding is this forms um, a pretty significant part of your approach to social justice as a spiritual practice. I so resonated with that diagram and its explanations. And I'm curious if you would help our listeners to understand elemental activism and how that combines spirituality with justice work. Sure. Thank you. Um, wow. Okay. So, so much to talk about, it seems. But so elemental activism, that really came into, that came into my awareness when I was, you know, if we go back to our last conversation for a bit, you know, when we were having the workshops, we were doing a six part series workshop about what is social justice as a spiritual practice. And I think, you know, it was, the workshop was really there to get the feedback from all different walks of life, right? All different types of sects. We wanted to understand what, first of all, one, like we all knew that social justice was a part of everyone's religion. And then we were just kind of like, but why did it not ever translate to that? It kind of happened organically that what we agreed on would be a primary element of SJSP was to have peaceful protesting be a part of it, you know, like as one of the main ways to like show your faith pretty much, you know, like for Christianity, it's you have to get baptized or you have to, you know, say that Jesus is your Lord and savior. And there was really, we didn't have anything like that to kind of hold on to or to anchor to. So we, we found uh, Tim Titus, who so graciously allowed us to use his particular framework. He created a pentacle of activism. So um, and there's a place where you can kind of check that out. But what we did was we essentially took his platform and we added what it would look like if we put different types of social justice actions to it, right? So we have air, for example. So that's get informed, communicate, collectively, you know, speaking about things. Air, it's your voice. It's the premise of air is your throat chakra, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the second reason why it was important for me to bring in the elemental aspect of it is because I grew up in a born-again Christian household and we never talked about the environment. And so I thought that, um, and I mean, you know, I, I have Native and Indigenous ancestry myself. So it was a kind of an organic leap to say, hey, you know, let's go back. You know, let's really ground ourselves and let's let's connect as black and brown people back to the earth that they disconnected us from. Right. So to me, it really seemed like an important piece of this conversation was to bring black and brown people back to the earth here, mm -hmm. you know, in this country, because we're so disconnected from the earth. Now you're starting to see more like, especially with COVID, you know, there's a lot of more black farmers, but there'd be mm -hmm. so much more black farmers if they had the access to be able to get, money from the banks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
there are a lot of different reasons why we've been separated from things that I believe would create empowerment for Mm -hmm. us as people. They wanted us to, to do the land, but it was only for them. It wasn't for us. So it was really for me getting to this approach, social justice as a spiritual practice, using the elements made sense because like, and especially for spirit too, because that's really where the justice for me, at least, you know, and to be clear, I just wanted to say, just to back up a little bit, social justice as a spiritual practice is not your typical religion. You know, we're not, we're not passing around the the plate every Sunday, (laughs) you know, we're not, you don't have to believe in any kind of God or this or that. Like, you can actually be someone who doesn't believe in God at all. But if you believe that there's a reason to care for the environment, social justice as a spiritual practice, for example, could be something that you could connect with. Mm-hmm. But that's up to you. We essentially created something that could theoretically be incorporated into other religious spaces. So we didn't necessarily want people to say, no, we don't, we don't want you to do your religion. It's like, what we want you to do is acknowledge that there is an issue with the religion that you're following. And maybe it's worth it to create more space, more of a safe space so that people can feel as though they can still interact and connect to things that are happening in the world. Because what I was experiencing, what, what people were telling me was that They would be going out, you know, the police would shoot an unarmed black person. They'd be out in the streets peacefully protesting or protesting. But then they'd go to the black church on Sunday and they really wouldn't talk about it. Or they would go to the white church on Sunday and they really wouldn't talk about it. You know, so there there was this real serious disconnect, like a separation between um, the lived experiences of black and brown people and what they were able to get or to acquire access in terms of actual support from their spiritual spaces, like authentic support, (laughs) you know, not just like, yeah, we're going to pray for that brother, but (laughs) you know, authentic support, like how are we going to fix this? How can we make these changes in, in our community and standing up to the truth of the legacy of these religions, like being honest You know, because I think that that was part of what's been disempowering us as black and brown people is that we have people who don't want to be honest about the, you know, the foundation of what these religions did. And if it was meant to disempower us, how could we possibly be fully empowered now? And that was always my question that I brought to the conversation. So elemental activism essentially, for me, became a question of, how can we walk gently? How can we interact with the world? Love it. Love it. How can we interact and, and want to be in social justice? Like, because like, let's be real, right? Once you take that pill, right? You know, that red pill, that blue pill. <laughs> blue pill. <laughs> Once you take that pill, you're done, right? Because then you, you can't unsee it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can't unsee the injustice. And the more you show up for yourself, the more you can't unsee. So then you end up being that person who's always being like, uh, excuse me. You're also forgetting about this or you're forgetting yeah. about these people. And we're really not as inclusive as we think we are. And we really need to start thinking about all of this stuff. And by the way, if we're really talking about how we can get free, how do you think we can get free from using white supremacist hierarchical infrastructures? <laughs> to gain that freedom because that's what's happening. We're, we're celebrating mob mentality. We're celebrating pettiness. We're celebrating going out into the streets until you can't breathe. You're not eating. You're not drinking water. You're not resting. Like, look, here's the thing. Even the armed forces understands not everybody could be on the front line. There's going to have to be some people on the front line, while those front people on the front line, there's people in the back who are asleep. They're fed. They're ready, right? And unfortunately, what I've experienced in, in social justice spaces is that everyone feels as though they can't leave. Right? I have to be there. Like, everything's going to fall apart. No. 
everything's going to fall apart if you keep going and you get burnt out. That's it. And you don't give yourself enough space to rest. You don't give yourself enough space to be with the trauma that happens when you're out on the street and you're pounding the pavement and you're peacefully protesting and you have to go out and you try to have to explain why people should care about you. We shouldn't even have to have be having these conversations. Yeah. The fact that we we're forced, we're being forced to do it because otherwise what's the alternative? Right? So it really started to, for me, it started to really resonate in a way that I was not even kind of ready for, right? Because, I mean, I come from this really strict religious background and I'm trying to start my own religion. (laughs) I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm like, I don't want people to get me wrong with this. It's like, I honestly did this. There were strategic reasons for doing this. And like I had mentioned in the last episode, at the very tail end, part of the reason why this really, it, it called to me. It called to me to to build and not to kind of give up on it. Because, no, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, this has been happening. I've been talking about SJSP off and on since 2015. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is still hard for people to kind of wrap their mind around. They don't really understand Right. And I'm just like, well, here's why. (laughs) It's like, if we give ourselves a reason to be able to protect ourselves, we need to be proactive because we're always reactionary. And that's exactly how the system wants us to be. They want us to ignore the reality and not be prepared. Because if we are not prepared, then they can get away with a lot more. Yeah, and not succeed. One of the things that appealed to me so much about that elemental activism part of what you sent me, last night I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about how they've now measured, they did this study of like 11,000 people. And when they played them sounds from nature, so like birds chirping, trees blowing, basically signs of life in the environment that it brought people's cortisol levels, their stress levels down. Like they felt part of this bigger environment and therefore wanting to protect the environment, to protect the world that they live in. Like we don't want to lose this. But what they also found is a significant number of people who had never been exposed to sounds of nature because they'd only ever lived in urban environments. And so when they heard that, they didn't connect with it. They didn't resonate with it. They didn't care about it. And so it becomes this like... I feel like sometimes it's this us and them thing and like the urban, which is also code for black and brown, (laughs) right? right? Gets blamed for environmental decay, even though they're exposed to the worst effects of environmental impacts, even though they're the ones who've been working the land for forever. And they kind of brought it up. The the story didn't go too in depth about it. They're like, it's so concerning because now they're realizing two things. One, yes, more and more people need to get outside. We need to be hiking. We need to be in parks. We need to be exploring our environment. But there's also like a crisis of people who haven't been exposed to these kind of elementals, you know, of our environment. Like that needs to happen right away because their actual health, like their well-being, their life really and truly depends on it. And we can't change this generation or the next generation until people have a memory. If you don't have a memory, of being in an environment with like other sentient beings and biology around you, like plant life and, you know, more than just other people, if you're just pounding the pavement, that's seriously detrimental to your health. And I know I'm probably not telling you anything. Oh, you yeah. don't I mean, already you know. know. <laughs> when we were kids, when we were kids, we used to have a 4th of July bash every year at my house and all of my cousins from the city would come. And so this was like the one, we usually only saw them like one to two times a year, but typically it was always on the 4th of July. So, and they all, you know, they all lived in, you know, St. Nick, you know, 175th street, some lived in Staten Island. And when they came to our house, they would all fall asleep. We would find, we would find people like posted up under trees you know, because it was just the breeze and you can hear the leaves and 
the smell of the summer because of my family. We lived out in Long Island and we were pretty close to, we were between um, like, we were, we were near the Hamptons. We were about 20 minutes away from the Hamptons. So it was beautiful. Like the, my side of the house was all like wild blueberries and wild raspberries and honeysuckles. And so you have these kids, that's the only time that they ever went to the country was when they came to our house. So yeah, for sure. Thank you for introducing that as such a fundamental part of, you know, this organization that you founded to encourage people in such a well-rounded way to be connected with themselves and with, with community. I think that's really important. And I, I kind of wanted to dive into how that has formed part of your approach to, and it might seem like we're jumping a little bit, but in June of 2020, you wrote an insightful, a special article for the Sacramento Bee called Enough is Enough. It's time for a National Black Bill of Rights to protect our lives. And in it, you mentioned that the proposed Black Bill of Rights includes the right to a police force that reflects the makeup of the community being served, the right to transparency of all law enforcement policies and procedures, and the right to create a police commission with subpoena power for investigating uses of force. And my understanding is that you formed the Black Bill of Rights after nearly five years of intensive research and interviews with more than 100 families. So realizing this is a giant project and one with ongoing developments and ramifications, can you tell us more about what it is and what was the catalyst or main catalyst? I almost feel like that's a dumb question, but like what like <laughs> I do, like as I'm saying it, I'm like, that's kind of dumb now. But I feel like before 2020, that would have been a really valid question for a lot of people. I feel like now in 2022, it's it's maybe less valid, but it's more because I just want you to expound on, <laughs> you know, on what's behind yeah. it. Not that I don't know, but just for the benefit totally. of, of the listener. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, you know, first I will say that um, the work that I started doing for SJSP was also coinciding with work that I had started to do professionally. So at the same time, I had also created with my partner Activism Articulated Communications Firm. And so all of this kind of started, it was working together because we saw very clearly, my wife used to work for the news. So she was like really on it when Occupy was coming up mm -hmm. and that whole thing. And, you know, so we love to analyze stuff where, you know, definitely we'll sit here for hours and we'll just like talk about messaging, you know, and, and what needed to be different from the messaging and, you know, what they did wrong, what they did right. And, and so that basically started to become my specialty. Like I would practice, I would listen to these talking heads and I would listen to what they were saying. I would be listening to what they didn't say. And then I waited to see what happened in the 3D world. Mm -hmm. Right. So everyone has, you know, you could talk a good talk, but I was really like, okay, so we still have after four and a half years, people are still saying the same things. So the whole thing about the premise behind the Black Bill of Rights I have to say that I am, I'm a very big thinker, you know, a one and two, I was basically raised that if I, if I'm going to complain about something, then I better do whatever is in my power to shift it. Cause otherwise I can't complain. Cause then you're just, you're just another person who just is going to complain and just like put bad juju into the world. Right. <laughs> so, so after Stefan Clark, our community member here in Sacramento and his family. And I mean, it was just, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. One, the fact that Stefan was shot in his backyard, but what a lot of people don't know is that his older brother was shot at the front door a few years prior. Didn't know that. So they lost two sons. One son got shot in the back yard by the cops and the older son got shot in the front yard. Not by police, but, you know, it was just like, it really had me just looking at the whole thing as a, a broader conversation. Like, why are police able to kill Black people? 
like this. There has to be something that we just, we don't understand, like fundamentally about what's happening with the legislation, what's going on with the policy. Like, mm-hmm. where is the, where's the disconnect? Where's the breakdown? So then I just, I went crazy, right? I just, I researched everything. I started to go back into the history. And that's, I think that's another part too, is that we're, we're very disconnected from history. Many of us, you know, like we're not really, and first of all, because of how the history is talked about and how it's presented, you know, it's, it's created, it's, it's spoken to by the winners, right? Yep. That's, that's what writes history, the winners. So you're still, you're not, you're, you're getting all these little bits and pieces of what's really happened, but Essentially, the biggest thing about what I saw was how, despite the fact that black and brown individuals were clearly given certain fundamental freedoms, you know, based on the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the fact is, is that we're not in power. (laughs) So we still have the ability to not have those rights because the people who do have the power know how to navigate all of the loopholes to take away those very powers that they really didn't want to give us in the first place, right? So they didn't want to give it to us in the first place, and they found all the loopholes to to get out of it so that we still didn't get it. We're still getting shot in the street. Who cares, right? But it was that was really what drove me. I was like, I need to understand this. So then I, and I did. <laughs> I researched it until I understood it. And while I did that, I was also having interviews with, as you said, you know, over a hundred different families who have lost loved ones at the hands of the police who are innocent. But then I also spoke to tons of policymakers and legislators, you know, people who were out there, policy wonks and lawyers. And, you know, I, I have a pretty good, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of people that I can go to and ask questions. Let's just put it that way, right? Okay. So I felt pretty confident that I had a way, and I'm not saying that it's the way, but Mm -hmm. I felt like between my ability to create campaigns, because that's essentially what I do. I've been creating campaigns since 2006, 2005. So I started to think on what I could do in terms of campaigns to create empowerment for our communities in a way that we didn't even have to deal with the federal government, that we can really do a lot of the change, get a lot of the shifts and the changes that we're looking for as communities on a local level. And that was just kind of my premise. I was like, we need to figure out a way that we can do this without having to go through the federal process because we go in there with a really good bill or good policy or legislation and it comes out all watery. Mm-hmm. So it's never what we want. It's, it's like a, a small sliver of what we really wanted it to be. So, you know, we, I just kind of, I was just like, okay, well then I'm just going to start creating campaigns, different campaigns. So essentially I wanted the black bill of rights to be kind of like a, a social social justice activist, um, what I call it, one of those Swiss army knives. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good visual. <laughs> I, I wanted people to have the ability to meet the, you know, connecting to how do we make changes in our community where they were, right? Because a lot of this stuff, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to understand who's running for this seat and why that seat's important and who cares about the DA? Who cares, right? Who cares about your governor? But like all of these things really matter. And to be honest, the thing that I keep telling people now is that, you know, I honestly didn't really, I was going on a gut instinct, but I really didn't understand how much power we have on the local level until Trump was in office and COVID happened. Because he kept punting COVID to the states. Yep. And I was like, that means that we have a lot more power than we have ever imagined we did. If he's saying that we can literally, we can be the ones to dictate what needs to happen here. Not the other way around. But if we go through the federal government, 
then that's the case. Then we have to go through the process. And so I was like, look, I understand that this is a multi-pronged approach. We have to do everything. We have to have boots on the ground, people in the street, right? We have to have the people who are able to write legislation. We have to, you know, have people who are, you know, able to go into these different rooms and spaces and, and stand for people, right? And that's really kind of how everything happened. So I started to one by one just make different means for which people could could engage, you know, and I mean, and kind of just going back to the spiritual conversation too. I mean, it, it is worth saying that these things are really happening simultaneously because I was doing the, you know, the organic, this is what we have to do. Right. right. So, I mean, these things were happening simultaneously. Like I was building my communications firm with my wife. I was also building these campaigns. And then I was also still, you know, going through this, my own spiritual practice and like actually using SJSP for myself, you know? So it actually started to become an intimate, uh, I started to engage in it actually like an actual practice, you know? And it was weird for me, right? Because I was just like, wow, you know, this is really, this is the thing. Like when you create your own practice, you can really do what you want. <laughs> I love it. But and so you should, like, that's the words that's coming to me right now is that, and so you should, because in advocating for this thing that you're doing, of course, it's part of your everyday life. And that's what you're, and rather than thinking of it as an approach of selling, to, it's just like, this is what works for me. And I want to share what works. Or that's how I see it anyway. I could be wrong, but well, yeah, yeah, it was really it was happening parallel for sure. Yes. Like there was the spiritual practice element of it. It was just like, you know, I really like part of why I love SJSP so much is because it really allows for people to engage with it in whatever way. You know, however you want to show up to it. The only thing that we say is that you are authentically connected to justice genuinely connected to you believe that everyone should have freedom and justice. That's the only requirement that we have and seek to be the best person that you can be in that awareness as you can. And that's it. And so that was really kind of, I took that idea and then I translated it to the campaigns that I was creating. And I was like, okay, you know, People who have nothing to do with politics at all, what might they do? Well, they might share a post. So let me create some social media stuff for them so that they could share it, you know, like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then, uh, then we were fortunate enough to connect with the ACLU and then the ECLU partnered with, with us and decided to help us to create a toolkit and which is amazing and they've been really great partners in doing that and we're waiting to it's coming out any moment now we've been trying to figure out how to roll it out um but the toolkit is essentially it is a way to navigate your grievance so for example if you have a child who's in school and you know they get sent home because she has cornrows in her hair, right? What would you do? I've experienced that. Well, we know, right? We know that the Crown Act has been passed. So as a parent, you can use this toolkit and say, okay, because you want to make sure you talk to the right people. So it might mm -hmm. be the board, you know, it might be your school board. It might be the principal. It might be the superintendent. But there's, you know, there's different channels that you might be able to kind of go through and to make changes within your community. And so the toolkit, the ACLU Black Bill of Rights toolkit is essentially to help people navigate that. So it's a very easy system. Everything is color coded. So depending on what you want to get done within your community, you can, there's a key where you can figure out, okay, if I want this to happen, this is the things that I have to do to make that happen and work. I wish that that community toolkit had been around. So as you know, I'm a mom, I have two daughters and they're adults now, but when they were young, they've told me these stories as they've become adults that I didn't know when we were growing up. And one of them told me that she's had several teachers and this is in Canada, you know, growing up when they were little, 
that like undid their hair. Like they would go, I would every Sunday night, like cornrow or braid their hair. And then they'd come home and like, they're like, what? stuff was but, missing. But you put your hands on my child. Like, right. But I didn't know. <laughs> and I always thought that they were like, it was them or their friends pulling out the bottles. Of it, and they were like, no, it was the teacher. It was the librarian. It was this. And I was like, why didn't you say anything? I was like, like that's I just, your hair. I know. But you hear about <laughs> cases like that all the time. And I mean, I know time. this is in the, the Crown Act. Like I wrote something about that a couple of years ago. And I'm like, part of me rejoices that this is, you know, there's something on our side. But at the same time, I'm like, it's ridiculous that we have to have this in place to protect yeah. like children also, like yeah. the wrestler. I'm sure you've seen that thing where they yeah. made him cut yeah. his dread. I mean, that's off. the I, thing. It's like, you know, these teachers are bullies. Mm-hmm. I, I like, for example, like, the, you know, people are saying, oh, to the kids, you don't have to wear your mask. So leave me alone. You know? I'm going to school. I want to wear my little mask. You don't have to. There's no reason why you need to yeah. tell me that I don't have to wear my mask mm-hmm. or say, oh, take off your mask. I mean, it's like the, these adults are bullying children. <laughs> Full stop. And it's, they I are. mean, that's, and that's the part, right? It's like, I've said this to many people. It's like, I'm not saying that the Black Bill of Rights is the answer to all things. Amen. You know, I'm also not saying that SJSP is the answer to all things, but based on what I've experienced and I've been on the front line. Okay. Mm -hmm, I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've been in rooms with Benjamin Crump and, you know, I've seen things that I don't, I wish I didn't, you know, I've heard things that I wish I didn't hear. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, that's the part of this that fuels me is because people really aren't understanding my perspective, right? But I understand it. So for me, when I'm thinking about how do I help my communities, I can't help but think of it through a spiritual lens. Because I understand that the only way that we're going to get free is if we understand what freedom is. And because we've never experienced freedom, that means that we have to be able to reach down and understand how to, 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 to pull it towards us. Right. And I mean, that's part of the spiritual practice for me is that I I've done a lot of research and studying about manifesting. Now I've never read the secret. I don't plan on reading the secret anytime soon. But I will say that I do definitely believe that there is something to be said about understanding manifestation and understanding manifestation includes understanding, being able to pull the feeling towards you. And that was really, that's what put me on the path to, to get as insightful when we were building the SJSP workshop as I did, because I was just like, okay, now I believe in manifesting things. So if I'm really looking at this from the perspective of someone who is standing in the truth of manifestation, mm-hmm. that basically means that everything that we're doing activist-wise is for all intents and purposes wrong. Because if you want joy, you have to stand in the energetic frequency and vibration of joy. Mm-hmm. If you want freedom, you have to pull freedom, the energetic frequency and vibration of freedom to you. How are we approaching our activists' work? With fear, sadness, hate, anger, grief, all low vibe frequency, right? So it makes sense that we're still doing the same thing today Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we were doing back in the 50s. Because we still haven't been able to figure out how we can be proactive and show up for our own lives without having to do it based on the reaction of something from the outside happening to us. What if we just stayed in that space of action? Mm -hmm. What if we were saying, okay, if I know that I'm a social justice activist, right? I can't help it. Because every time I step outside of my house, those labels are thrown onto me and Mm -hmm. I, and I bear the brunt of them. So for me, 
I have to understand how can I show up in a way that's not going to burn me out because it's not a choice for me. Standing up for black and brown people is not a choice. Like it's something that I have to do. If I hear that there is anything that's inequitable, I'm going to keep saying it until someone either throws me out of the room, fires me, or tells me to shut up because that's just who I am. That's, that is how spirit compels me to show up. That's what it means to stand in your own purpose and your own mission. It's like, I can't help but do that. And I'm like a dog with a bone. If I see the injustice, I'm not going to stop until the injustice stops. <laughs> if the injustice doesn't stop, I'm not going to stop. So that was really what drove all of everything that I was doing was it was like, it was the yin and the yang. It was the, you know, the, the, the yin of black people all still getting shot <laughs> and me going through the spiritual cycle of how do I stand in the truth of my spiritual understanding and show up? Because that was the distinct difference that I saw was that even, you know, I mean, Martin Luther King, and you know, everyone always goes back to Martin Luther King, but I mean, he was an incredible man. Incredible. But the fact was, was that he did understand something, but a lot of people who are around him didn't understand, right? He understand that he had to show up in peace. He understand that he had to, in order to do that, he had to be the peace. He couldn't be angry, right? Now, maybe he did understand it from a spiritual perspective. Maybe he did have that insight, but he didn't, I don't think he really spoke to it from that perspective. But now in this day and age, me, I have the ability to say, not only is it about being the peace, because if you're not the peace, you're going to give them the reason to beat your ass. <laughs> so you have to be the peace. But it's also being the peace because you understand it from the, the perspective of manifesting what you want. If yeah. we want freedom, we have to manifest freedom. We can't do it in the way that, therefore, how we approach our activism and how we engage in our activism has to shift. It mm -hmm. has to change. Oh, I just want to like bottle up what you just said. <laughs> it's going to yeah, be a... You do. I think it's going to be out that's going to go out on the, the Instagram promotion of this episode because, yeah, you just encapsulated so much right there. And I you kind of alluded to it or mentioned it earlier. I know you have a, a framework for a course, a six-part series of community virtual meetings that focus on social justice issues in America and how activism can be approached and engaged with, as you've said, an everyday practice that you do yourself. I'm curious if you can delve a bit more into this for listeners who may be curious to learn more. And is this something that's, that's live, like something that people can sign up for right now? Or is it something that's going to be launching in future? Or if it's already launched, can people join if it's already begun? <laughs> <laughs> well, when we were, you know, in person, we were doing the workshops in person. And so we've Before kind time. of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Pre-apocalypse. <laughs> yes. uh, so we haven't, obviously, you know, we haven't done anything live. And then um, now I'm, we're in the process, like I said, we have finally gone through the process of putting, uh, making SJSP a nonprofit and also making it as, you know, a religion, spiritual practice. So that's all new. So I'm kind of in the process of building that support infrastructure so that we can start to, to continue that again. So hopefully I'm hoping that the, <laughs> my, my search for board members <laughs> and or volunteers, um, you know, is gets really strong in the next couple of months because, you know, hopefully I would like to start doing this you know, at least probably going into the fall. But yeah, I mean, it's the, the workshop that we have is essentially, it's a six part series and it goes through what social justice as a spiritual practice means in general, right? It's really kind of 
walking people through the conversations that I had with that, uh, that first dozen of individuals of, you know, and what we came to be our collective truth as we walk through this process. So it's essentially, you know, how you can start to kind of shift your mindset, right? Because it's, it's weird. I'll be the first to admit it. It's just like, how is social justice and spiritual practice? It seems kind of like almost counterintuitive, right? Because you're just like, well, a spiritual practice should give you peace. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, exactly. A spiritual practice should give you peace. A spiritual practice should give you support. A spiritual practice should empower you. And not just to believe in something in the sky, but also empower you as an individual, as you as a, as a spirit being having a human experience and engaging in the world present to that truth and that power, being the master that we're trying to, you know, we're, we're, we're still kind of busy, you know, wanting to find a master to follow. And I believe that the time that we're in right now is we're past that. The time that we're in right now is that we have to become our own masters. I'm not saying we're God, but I'm saying that I believe that God is ready for us to step up our connection. I believe that what we believe to be the all that is, is saying, hey, you know what? I want to, I want to co-create more with you. Mm. I want you, I want us to be more connected in a conscious way, in a real way, in a way that people can actually get to understand the basic humanity of things. We're all human. We're miracles. We work by ourselves. Our hearts beat on their own. Our blood goes through our bodies on, on its own. By itself. Like, what would this world be if we were actually able to keep that in the forefront of our mind? And I think that that's kind of how, that's why I'm saying that social justice as a spiritual practice, the Black Bill of Rights, all of the work that I've basically done over the few years has really come down to that. Pretty big though. I'm just like I keep having these moments as we're talking, and I'm like, I'm so grateful. I'm blown away, but I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you. And my kind of one of the last two questions I wanted to ask you was connecting with. Well, whatever. I'll be honest. I have like a hundred questions I could ask you, but but for the sake of the time, you know where we are here. I know you have a degree in audio engineering and you were, you know, you've had a, a previous life, so to speak, um, as a musician. <laughs> um, and you also have significant education and training in holistic theology. Can you, I guess, tell us a little bit more about how those two things meet now and into the future? Like, where do you see your life's work going? Because we've talked about this kind of evolution of your life, your childhood rooted in um, in a pretty Baptist religious household, and then moving into music, and then moving, having this NDE that really led you along more of a spiritual path and doing more of the social justice work. And I don't exclude, you know, I know all of that's been the arc of your very specific and unique experience. So where do, where do you see it? I don't want to, it sounds like a, a LinkedIn question. Like where do you see yourself in five years? And I don't mean, it, <laughs> yeah. and I don't mean it in that way. I'm just sort of like, where do you see all of your life's works going? And there may not be an answer. It may not, you know, it might not be neatly tied up in a bow, but I'm just curious of your vision. I'll say this, that to give a definition of holistic theology is holistic theology is the study of God as a whole. Okay. And so people would probably have different perspectives of what that might mean to them. Right. Mm -hmm. You mean God as a whole, like God, me, you, the earth, the world, what's happening. This is all God. (laughs) So for me, it's like, okay, if this is all God, then who are we in relation to it? 
And how do we build a relationship with it? And so that's always going to be kind of like my inspiration for everything is because, like I said, I can't, I can't help but be an activist because I get annoyed. I get annoyed by injustice. And I don't like to see it. I don't like when people get away with doing it. And I think that if you have the voice to stop it, that you should. And that's always going to be me. So that's always going to be a piece of what guides me to do what I do. And simultaneously, standing in the space of truth of what that really means, like not disconnecting right? It's like, I'm, I'm going to go out in the street. You know how they say, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, you at the club on Saturday <laughs> in the pew on Sunday, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> yet. But you know what I mean, right? It's like, that's like, I think in general with, with everything that's kind of how everything is unfolded, it's like, it's really clear that you can see that that's, that's kind of what's been holding us back, right? Is because people are ready to be an activist in certain ways, right? But I think that there's more ways to be an activist. And, and I think that that's the biggest part of this is because in order for us to really access joy and freedom, we have to be able to access our joy. And when you look at the world and what the world is doing, when you, when you, I'm, I'm like, let's bring it down to the simple, simple things, right? When you take away people's freedoms, when you take away people's rights, what are you doing? You're taking away their joy. You're taking away the one thing that will allow them to raise their actual vibrational frequency as a person mm -hmm. in order to do that. So that's part of the reason why energetically we can never, we're, it's hard to get free right now. Energetically, they're, they're doing everything that they can energetically to make it not happen. <laughs> that's why there's so much fear. That's why there's, a, you know, we're on the brink of nuclear war, World War Three, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, you know what? The news is important. It's important to be aware. It's important to understand what's happening. But for me, where the schism is, is that people take it to an extreme, mm -hmm. right? Yes, you understand what's happening. Yes, it, it might invoke feelings of fear for you, but that's when you have to level up. <laughs> that's when you have to take that mastership seriously and say, okay, I understand. I feel that feeling. I'm going to allow that feeling to move through me. And now I'm going to stand in the truth of what I know. And that's that I have to raise my vibration. That means I have to keep my side of the street clean. That means I have to keep my yuck off of everybody and everybody has to keep their yuck off of me. And the way that I do that is if I protect myself spiritually, <laughs> I have to learn how to ground myself spiritually. And these are things that are simple that people don't really think about that much anymore. Right. But it's like our ancestors, you know what? They were slaves but every day they had their hands in the ground. Every day they were interacting with Gaia. And I think that honestly, that's what gave them their strength. It was the strength of being able to be, everything else was ridiculous and awful. But the thing was, is that I think that that's what gave them their fortitude. That's what gave them the strength was because they were out in the field. They were getting the energy from Gaia, right? And it's something that people don't really think about, but I'm like, that's the piece of this when with the elemental stuff, right? That's why, and even with the Black Bill of Rights, if you go to the Black Bill of Rights website right now, there's one main aspect of it, that's the environment. I want people to understand that there are bills of rights for the environment. There are bills of rights for us as as black and brown people, like we're supposed to be able to have clean air. We're supposed to be able to have clean water. Like these are things that we're supposed to have by the law. <laughs> and if we're not engaged in politics and we're not really engaged in understanding 
all of our rights. We have so many rights that are completely trampled on because we don't know them. And so that's part of the reason why I use the Bill of Rights as the focal point of this is because (laughs) ironically, the way that it works is that it actually gives us strengthened rights. I mean, it does, you know, so that's why I was saying for me, the Black Bill of Rights, and (laughs) I just have to say this too, because I keep saying this conversation because I'm hoping that someone will tell the original family members, but I did not know that there was a Black Bill of Rights that was in existence before I started working on the Black Bill of Rights. Mm, I didn't either. So yes, yeah, so, <laughs> yes, right, yeah. So, so I was working on the Black Bill of Rights for pretty much, let's say, like maybe three and a half years before I started to do any kind of media stuff on it, and that was when I did my first thing was the Creative Mornings. That was the okay. first time I. You have two firsts for me. Yeah. That's where I first met you. That was the first time I talked about the Black Bill of Rights was Creative Mornings. And I did that because I was prompted to do that by a good friend. So now I'm just like, okay, well, here we are. And this is how we can kind of shift our mindset to it. So I think that all of this stuff is connected. It really is. Oh, my goodness. So where... I'll put it in the show notes because I know I have links that, you know, you've sent me and I've been following along with you. Where can our listeners find and engage with you, the Black Bill of Rights, Activism Articulated, wherever you are on on the socials, (laughs) if you are on the socials? Uh, You can find me at uh, blackbillofrights.com. You can go to blackbillofrights.com. I would recommend you going to the resource section because the resource section is really where all the good tools are at, you know, from, like I said, there's, there's social media toolkit that's there for people to understand stuff more. There's, there's even ways for you to build your own bill of rights. And there's just a lot of things that that are there. Oh, the one thing that I did want to say about there, me not knowing that there was a black bill of rights, speaking of, Mm -hmm. sorry, I just had to go back to that. So when I started doing media after doing the creative mornings, I started Googling Black Bill of Rights and nothing came up. Like I Googled Black Bill of Rights for three years and nothing came up. I started doing media and then just one night randomly, like at midnight, I Googled Black Bill of Rights and then all of a sudden I see Black Bill of Rights 1972. Oh. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I click on it and it's a link to an article that's archived in the New York Times and it's about the Black Bill of Rights and the fact that the Black Caucus not only created a Black Bill of Rights, but they also created a Declaration of Independence for Black people. And I would not have found out any of this if I didn't start doing media because the media allowed the algorithm on Google I was just going to say, Google's to pull it up too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. It was just like, it was full circle. It was, I sat there and I was like, wow, isn't this crazy? Because what I'm saying, because all of the research that I was doing, you know, historical research about what really happened after slavery ended, you know, like everyone talks about 40 acres and a mule. Not too many people understand what that really was. 40 acres and a mule was not free. <laughs> Everyone's in here talking about they want a 40 acres and a mule. I'm like, no, you don't, because you have to pay back for the 40 acres and a mule. That's the part of the story that many people don't get. You had to pay back 40 acres and a mule. I did not know that. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that. So, yeah. (laughs) So it just, I was looking at how um, these are the things that we need to bring to the open. You know, this was like proving my point, like what I was Googling Black Bill of Rights and couldn't remember that. uh, I'm sorry, I'm Googling Black Bill of Rights and then I never seen 1972. So essentially, if I did not put in 1972, I would have never found it. And so this is a piece of history that's a pretty important piece of history. Shirley Chisholm was one of the main authors on the Black Bill of Rights. Oh, yeah. Well... That makes sense too. I have not been able to find a version. 
I've never seen it. And there's only one article about it, and it's archived, so you have to pay to read it. But there's not really that much information on it. Mm-hmm. I keep saying this out loud to people. I'm just like, hey, by the way, <laughs> if you hear this and, and you know one of the ancestors of the main authors are just like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. We did a Black Bill of Rights. I'm like, please come talk to me. Yeah. I want to know. I'm trying to give attribution. Because, like, yeah, because I, yeah, it's because I'm like, this is their legacy. You know, I want to give them this to be like, hey, you know what? I picked this up and I didn't even know I picked this up. Because that's the point of all of this. The point of all of this is that unless we search, we don't know. There will be so many things that we don't know <laughs> if we don't research it. It's interesting you chose the words the thread, you picked up the thread. And so I have a visual, you know, of like a, you know, such a typically feminine thing, right? To sew a stitch or whatever, but it's, it's those threads, those interwoven things. The ancestral threads. Yeah. And the internet's a part of that too. Like, like you said, the algorithms, search terms, everything is, is so subjective to that user that's a whole other conversation but Indeed. it's it's part yes. of it right i still can't i'm like can you please stop being racist google i'm like i would like to <laughs> to type in images hands and not just see white hands for like five pages i'm still waiting i've been saying this now for six years but anyway yeah that yeah. was that was the key so for me like i don't know everything just kind of came full circle you know it came it really did the spiritual thing you know, and so just to kind of go back to my near death experience conversation. So one of the things that I thought, and I mentioned this to you the other day, was that when they were talking telepathically to me, and then mm-hmm. they stopped, and then they said something in my ear and whispered, I thought they were telling me that I should be a rock star. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but rock star has different meanings too, right? You can be a rock star at a musician, musician, yeah, rock star, though. But yeah. But I'm glad that it's moved beyond that now. And I feel like I'm much more in the space that was intended. Mm-hmm. And who's to say, you know, I might, there might be an SJSP choir in the future. Music. Fingers I crossed. Mean, yeah, we need the music. Sound is healing. Sound healing is, mm-hmm. and I was telling you the other day, you're the third person in the like yoga slash spirituality world that I've run into in the last 10 years, who was like this cusp of mega stardom, you know, with rock and then, you know, had a profound experience that shifted everything in their life towards, you know, a different purpose, a different path, you know, a more, a clearer path than mm-hmm. rock and roll stardom. And, you know, I love Lenny Kravitz like anybody else. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not knocking that whatsoever, but I'm so glad that, that you are you and that, that you've chosen the path you have lived. They gave you a choice. I'm so glad that you literally took that choice and came back to be with us and to be able to share, you know, everything that you've gleaned from that experience with all of us, that it's resulted in you forming this nonprofit with your partner and that you've been willing to be so vulnerable and share everything that you've learned and that you're going through with us. I feel like listeners are really going to get a lot out of these past two episodes. My gosh, this was a, this was a huge leap for this podcast as well. And I know you and I will continue to interact both online and offline. I want to thank you, Jasper. This has been an incredible, incredible few weeks, few months that we've been chatting, <laughs> actually. Um, and there's so much more to come. There's like, I feel like we've just kind of opened up Pandora's box in a sense of like, all that is possible. That's my word for this year is possibility. Uh, it's the mm. first time I've ever chosen a word for the year impossibility. Nice. That's a good one this year. Yeah, That's a real good one because anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in alignment. <laughs> and, that, and you're the first interview of 2022 that I'm doing. So I feel so honored that you chose to spend this time with us and all the listeners. So thank you again for that. Everyone, I will provide the links in the show notes so that you can connect with activism articulated and social justice as a spiritual practice. 
and get to know more about Jasper and what they are doing out in the world. And you can expect to hear more from me in a few weeks with our next (laughs) episode, which will probably be practice-based, but stay tuned. I'll keep you posted. It's always a great time for your mind to be on the mat. And listeners, we will see you next time. Thank you.